Today, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Nehemiah chapter 7. As we look at a chapter that's really all about protection. It's all about protection. You know, I'll share this with you guys just you know, off the cuff. It's kind of interesting. My wife won't let me get a, a motorcycle. Uh, she, she thinks that I'll crash and die because she's all, your reflections, your, what's it called, your, your reactions or whatever, they're slow. And, and, uh, and, and I'm like, what's, well, you know, and she says, you got you to gotta be in a car. And basically, her decision is for my protection, right? She doesn't want me to die. And who knows, you know, maybe God will use her for that. Um, we live in a world where we need that protection in so many ways. I and mean, some guys need bulletproof vests. Some guys need cars and seat belts. Uh, even today, we got a, a phone call from uh, one of our, our gas card companies. We have a gas card, and they called us up and they told us, "Hey, you know, uh, just out of curiosity, are these your charges?" And there was one charge on there on our gas card for $124. And I said, "No, our car's not that big. No, you know." <laughs> and so right away, they sent us a text message, and they call it fraud protection. They, they do what they can to protect us. Uh, we live in a world where we need that in so many ways, especially in the spiritual realm. You guys know that you're sheep, you need shepherds. You're, you know, the people of God and the enemy of God is coming against you. That's why you need God. We need God to protect us. The book of Nehemiah is about a man that God used to build walls to protect the people and to bring God glory. And there are so many lessons here for us to learn and so tonight, it's all about that. It's all about protection. And I pray that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit says. Uh, notice what we read here in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, And then it was, when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah the leader of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And so here we read that Nehemiah completed this portion of his mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So what he did was he appointed his brother Hananiah along with Hananiah, who was the commander of the fortress back then, to be in charge while he would go back to Persia he would then return, according to chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 13, verse 6. He had governed Judah for 12 years, but he would leave and then return. In the meantime, however, what Nehemiah does in order to protect the people is he anoints these guys to lead them and to take care of them. And what we see in the realm of protection, uh, first thing for tonight, is selection. And that is that you got to make sure that you appoint leaders uh, who will have that same heart. You know, I think of Moses and Aaron, and of course God would have to train Aaron, but in the early days, Aaron didn't have the heart of protection. In the early days, because what happens with the people is they have an inclination to go astray. And if you're not a strong leader, then they will go astray. But you know what we find when Moses was up in the mountain? Aaron did not restrain them. And therefore, they, they died. So many of them were caught up into adultery and sexual immorality. 
And so Moses was a strong leader who protected the people. So was Nehemiah. And so when he had to leave and go all the way back to Persia, he made sure that he chose men who had that type of heart because a shepherd's work can never be done without a shepherd's heart. And so he, kept, he picks a couple of guys here, and we see the two characteristics, right? Men who were faithful. We read that there in verse 2. And men who feared God. Here it says these guys feared him more than many. And so that's what you want to look for in a leader. You want to find someone who is faithful. You know, the Hebrew word it speaks of someone who's stable, reliable, consistent. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's interesting, the Hebrew word is usually translated truth. And so you want a man who is true. And so when you put the pieces together, you find that faithful men or women are, are the ones that you're praying for who are they're not an emotional roller coaster. They don't go up and down. You know, you can count on them to be even killed. You ask them to do something and they follow through. They're not sporadic in their church attendance or church service, you know, for whatever reasons, the excuses they might make. They hold to the truth. They tell the truth. They're not liars with their lips or with their lives. They're faithful. You see, and that's what we have to appoint. Today I was thinking about this. I was thinking, Lord, for many of us here, we're called to be protectors. And for many of us here, we're called to be protected. And so, you know, these are the things that we want to be. These are the things that we look for in others. And God, first of all, he lifts up that, that attribute of being faithful. You know, and to me, what this is what I was thinking. I was thinking, Nehemiah, you guys know he's considered to be one of the greatest leaders of all time. So what did he look for in a leader? You know, it would be almost like, you know, a great cook. I don't know, what's that guy, Wolf, Wolfgang? Is that his name? Yeah, that guy. Imagine him thinking who he thinks is a good cook, so to speak, you know? Or who does LeBron James learn from? Nehemiah, what would he look for in a leader? And it says right here, number one, that, that they would be guys who are faithful. You know, and, and I'm sure you know, you guys know this, they're hard to find. And the Bible says that in Psalms chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Help, Lord, it's a psalm of David, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And there's David looking for faithful men, couldn't find any. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, it says, most men will proclaim their own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? You know, they're hard to find, but they are out there. I pray that we may be found among the faithful. I know I can think of guys right off the top of my head where they are faithful, they're consistent, they're reliable, they're stable, they're in it, and God has done a great work in their life. And sometimes you wonder about other people, you just keep praying and waiting on the Lord. I want to be that. This is what God's calling us to, right? And so we need to know that at the end of the day, you guys, one day when we stand before God as believers, we're not going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment because we're saved, we're free, we're forgiven. We are going to stand before God at the Bema seat judgment and we will give an account for the works and lives we lived in, lived in service. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, that the most important thing is that we would be found faithful. Not famous, don't have to be big or rich, just faithful, right? 
And so, you know, Timothy, you know, he received a letter from Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2, and he said, the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so, Lord, give me faithfulness. Lord, give me that heart. Make me stable. Make me consistent. Make me reliable. Lord, make me a man who is true. I, I hold to the truth, and and I speak the truth, and I live the truth, because I know, Lord, at the end of the day, that's what you're looking for. I love your people, and I don't want them to be devoured by the enemy. Use me, God, to protect them. That's what we see Nehemiah is looking for, right? And that's why one day when we stand before the Lord and give an account of our service to him, uh, he would love to say to us, well done, good, and faithful servant, right? You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You know, I shared with you guys before that illustration that makes us think about faithfulness. You know, by applying the same standards to our Christian activities that we expect from other areas of our lives. For example, uh, you know, I know we don't think about this too much, but the very things that we own I mean, if your car starts uh, once every three times, is it reliable? No. If our refrigerator stops working for a day or two every now and then, uh, would we say, oh, well, it works, you know, some of the time? I don't think we would, right? If our water heater provides an icy cold shower (laughs) every now and then, it's not considered dependable. I mean, and not just, of course, the products, but more importantly, the people. If your paper boy doesn't deliver that newspaper on Mondays and Thursdays and Saturdays, would you consider him trustworthy? Or if your gardener only cuts the lawn when he feels like it, would you keep him? I don't think so. If our coworkers are, are no-shows, you know, just no-shows, no call, just don't show uh, a few times a month, would we consider them loyal employees? Or if someone misses a couple of loan payments, you know, each year, Uh, Do you think the bank would say, well, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? I seriously doubt it, right? And yet, a lot of times we see in the church, there isn't that consistency. There isn't that reliability. We expect faithfulness and reliability from products and other people, and I think we've got to come to that place where we know, know that God expects faithfulness from us as well. I like what one gal said. She said, faithfulness is consecration in overalls. And then John Chrysostom said, faithfulness in little things is a big thing. So I want to encourage you, and I I pray in my own heart that God would cultivate, number one, a faithfulness. Number two, notice again there in verse two, he says, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Not complicated. You know, it's not sophisticated. God is looking for men and women who are faithful, and God is looking for men and women who, who fear him. You know, just as a faithful man is rare, I think a fearful man is rare as well. You know, the Hebrew word is found 314 times in the Bible, and uh, in the authorized version, it's usually translated to fear or to be afraid, Out of that 314 times, 266 times, it's translated to to fear or to be afraid. Uh, Three times, 
It's translated reverence. Because some people, what they want to do is they want to they water down the fear of God and take away any fear and replace it only with reverence. And what I want to encourage you guys to do is be careful with that. I mean, you know, these are those guys and gals who, yes, reverence God, who acknowledge his majesty and his awesomeness. They're in awe of him and they fear him. See, not that God is just watching us and waiting for us to slip up in the slightest so he can crush us. No, it's a healthy fear that knows that whomever the Lord loves, he chastens. That'll keep you from adultery. That'll keep you from lust. That'll keep you from gossip, which are seeds of discord that God hates. The fear of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, will be used by God to perfect holiness. And what that means to me is it means to make me more like Jesus. Fear of God is a good thing, right? We know this was one of the qualifications articulated by Moses' father-in-law when he was telling him how to select leaders. He said the same thing in Exodus 18, 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth. Same thing. You know, and so I have to ask myself that question, do I really fear God? I mean, I just trip out, you guys. I trip out on how a man, especially a leader in the kingdom of God, could take the ministry so flippantly, put their own things before God. I trip out on how uh, a pastor can willfully live in habitual sin or engage in corruption, have an affair, abandon his family, steal from the treasury, slander the saints, lust after power for selfish reasons. I mean, you just wonder, how can they do those things? And the simple answer is Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is good. My wife told me that she never did drugs or alcohol because she knew her parents would beat her up, you know? And, and I'm not talking about child abuse or anything, don't get me wrong, but you know, there is a, it's a good thing to know that your parents love you enough that they'll discipline you if you get out of line. That's how our God is with us, right? And, and that helps us to have what I would consider a, a healthy fear, you guys. And I pray you guys have that, you know. Hopefully you're not one of those who thinks, well, God's going to sock me in the face when I, you know, do the slightest thing wrong. Do you guys know the character of God? Do you guys know how gracious he is, how long-suffering he is, how gentle he is, how patient he is? You guys know how awesome God is that he doesn't give us what we deserve. You guys know more or less how he's like that. I thank God for his grace, right? And so we got to make sure we have a healthy fear, one where, you know, we don't have unreasonable, you know, scary times. I was reading a story about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, I guess what happened was uh, he, he was afraid to go to church. He was afraid to go. The church he attended was Madison Square Church. He refused even to set into the building alone. Uh, they say he was terrified, and what happened was his mom you know, investigated, and she discovered the reason was of something called the zeal. The zeal. And so little Teddy thought it was crouched in the dark corners of the church somewhere, ready to jump at him. He said, 
And when she asked him what he thought the zeal was, he said, well, it's, it's, it's one of those animals, like an alligator or a dragon or, or something. Uh, he heard the minister, I guess, read from the Bible one day, and so she looked through her concordance uh, all the times where the word zeal was found until suddenly, uh, very excited, he told her, that's the one, that's the verse that the, the pastor spoke. And it was in John chapter 2, verse 17. It says, and the disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I guess, you know, this is funny. It's a true story. He thought if he went into church that somehow this alligator or dragon was going to eat him, right? And so I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about an unhealthy fear. I'm not talking about how when we blow it, you guys. We all do. If you're here and you say you don't blow it, then you're lying. We all do. I do. You might think, well, Manny doesn't because he's a pastor. Manny never gets mad. Some people have told my wife that. I'm sure your husband never gets mad. I get mad, let me tell you. I get mad sometimes. I blow it. But I tell you what, I, I thank God for his grace that I don't do it with eyes wide open. I try not to. Every day I wake up in the morning, I say, Lord, give me strength. I don't want to sin. And if I see some girl over here or whatever, I hear the, hear the high heels walking. You know, my flesh wants to look. Just so, who is it? Yeah, right. You know, no. Keep your eyes where they belong. You know, you're driving down the street and some gal's jogging. And for whatever reason, you're thinking, well, maybe I know her. No, you don't need to know her. Just keep your eyes on the road, man. Because I fear God. I, don't, I try not to do it with eyes wide open. That's the difference. When you continue in sin, persistent, consistent, resistant sin, then let me tell you, God's going to deal with you because he loves you. See? And that's what I'm talking about. That fear of God is what we need. Maybe the fear of the Lord is uh, a loving combination of two words, uh, scared and sacred. I kind of like those two words and put them together in a very healthy spiritual sense. You know, this last Wednesday in our Bible college class, so we're going through the book of Proverbs, and this last Wednesday we went over sexual purity. And what the Bible has to say, what Proverbs has to say, about the immoral woman or man who seduces the simple, who finds the fool and gets them to fall into sexual sin. And so we went over that together. And we pondered what the Proverbs has to say about sexual sin, how it devastates your life, how it drains your life, how it destroys your life, how it causes disease and divorce and death and even destruction in hell forever because the Bible says that no sexually immoral person is going to enter the kingdom of God. No fornicator will go to heaven and so we went over the Proverbs, right? And after the class, one of the students came up to me and said, thanks, I'm pretty sure you scared all of us, but in a good way. And you know what? You know, we need that, you guys. We really do. You know, here in this section right here, uh, Nehemiah gives us a couple of things to look for when we are engaged in protection the selection of leaders need to be men who are faithful and men who fear God. You know, the Proverbs does say in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Solomon summed it all up after he went through everything he went through. And at the end of his life, when he came back to the Lord, he said, 
Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. And so I pray we would have that that fear of God in our life. And so when it comes to protection, uh, first we see selection on Nehemiah's part. And I want to encourage you guys to have, you know, you choose good leaders. Uh, Secondly is direction. Because look at verse 3. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard. Let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. What's Nehemiah doing? He's protecting the people. He's protecting them, right? I mean, it's not enough to have gates. You have to have guards. You have to have guidelines for those guards to protect the people, right? Nehemiah here instructs them to only allow the gates to be open during the day and in only certain hours of the day. And while the gates were open, then the doors were to be barred. And through this whole process, there were to be guards from those who lived in Jerusalem, they would have an interest in the city. And so I said, I want you to appoint them to be guards. And there were those who lived along the city walls. He says they were to watch from their own houses. And so he just, in instruction, he's just telling everybody, you know, this is what you need to do. This is the direction. Um, I don't know if any of you here, have any of you here ever been involved in neighborhood watch? Is that what they call it? Neighborhood watch, you know how I get all the neighbors and kind of like Mrs. Kravitz from uh, that one uh, (laughs) and just kind of keeping an eye on things. That's kind of what Nehemiah set in motion. And although all the people were a part of it, the only real reason there was this protection was there was this direction. You know, Nehemiah knew that leaders are called to protect the people. We're watchmen. And so we do our our best as parents here and as pastors, as overseers, under rowers, servant leaders, we do whatever we can to protect the people. You know, in this case, it was to be very selective, and this is interesting, in letting nothing into the city of Jerusalem that didn't belong. You know, and there's a principle there. There is a, an awesome principle for all of us to, to really, you know, just dive into, Right? I mean, it can be anything for me as a pastor, being very selective in who would teach from this pulpit. I won't just let anyone teach from this pulpit. It's got to be somebody that I can entrust the people with. I don't just let anybody teach, right? Or it can be what books we sell back there. We're going to make sure that the authors are right on, that their, their theology is correct, right? Or even people that I quote from. It, it can be our ushers, and we're living in a different world now, or who are being trained in security, right? And, and keeping watch on those doors back there. We got a training thing coming up. I talked to the police department. They're going to come in and they're going to do a little training. You know, all of that is to protect the people, right? It can be at your home. And I, this is where it gets very practical. Being very selective and filtering what comes in the, the doors, what comes in through your computer and television and into the hearts of your children. You know, we pretty much have a rule at our house that if anybody knocks on the door and I'm not there, don't answer it. And you know, times have changed. I mean, maybe you think that's being overprotective, 
But you know what? I've heard too many stories of guys posing as whatever it is, knocking on the door, the door gets open, and the door gets pushed in, and something happens to them. And so, you know, we, we don't allow that door to be open unless I'm there. Um, we've got different rules when it comes to, you know, protecting my family. We've got, you know, sticks and chains and, I, I don't know, guns. No, I'm just joking. We don't know. You know, I mean, yeah, dogs. We've got a killer dog. He's about that big. <laughs> No, you know, seriously, um, I told you about my wife not letting me, you know, drive a, a motorcycle. That's her mentality, uh, although I want to so bad. Um, she's trying to protect me. Uh, man, that might not be God's plan for everyone here, but what I am saying is that we make decisions constantly to protect our families, and we have to be very clear in our direction you know, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding, sounding legalistic or paranoid, but I guess it's because I've seen so much as a pastor. I've seen families devastated by not keeping guard, by allowing anything into their homes. I've seen it happen time and time again. I'm really not exaggerating. As parents, I really encourage you to have gates and you have doors that are barred and you have disciplines and you have guards and godly guidelines on, on all your smartphones, on all your tablets, on your computers. You really should keep track of who your children are communicating with. You really should. No matter who you think they are, you know, you're like, well, my kid would never fall. I've seen it happen to the best children. You would never think. Some of you, you got little ones, and they're going to be growing up, and before you know it, they're going to go online, and they're going to do all that kind of stuff. You have to set guards and gates there, or your children will be ruined because of you. Now, there are certain things we can't stop. You know, as a parent, you know, there are certain things that I can't stop. And, you know, they're going to do that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. Prayerfully, it's not on my watch. I'll do whatever I can. And you need to do whatever you can to protect your children. We need to scrutinize what's allowed into our Jerusalem for the protection of our family and the protection of this flock. You know, I, I still have this admiration for one of the brothers, the dear brothers, who instructed his wife and children. He said, never open the mail. When the mail comes, what I want you to do is leave it there on the counter. When I get home from work, I will look through everything. And as he went through the mail, he would throw away the junk and all the skanky advertisements. Why? Because as a father, he had a heart to filter through everything that touched his family. And that's the way we need to be. And you're like, but Manny, my kids will get upset with me. Who cares? You're the parent. And God will lead you, I think, in these things. He went through the mail, threw away all the junky stuff, and then he gave the bills to his wife, and then, you know, he had a, a good life, man. You see, this is what leaders do in the selection of other leaders and the direction of those leaders. Nehemiah is so cool here in telling them these things, right? 
And then we read in, in verse 4, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. Then God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. And we're not going to read through this whole thing. But what's going on here is really interesting, you know. When the people returned from captivity, what happened was most of them didn't live or return to Jerusalem. They lived in other areas of Judah. And so Nehemiah noticed that there in Jerusalem, and he realized that the capital of a country must be populated. It needed people. So as he prayed about it, it's so cool, what's neat, he says there that God put something in his heart. Right, We read that there in verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart. Question, what's God been putting into your heart? You know, isn't the Lord awesome how personal he is? And He, as you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, he starts laying things on your heart. And maybe at first you're not sure it's him, but the Lord, he puts something there. He says, hey, I think you need to start going back to church. Or, hey, you know, maybe you should pray a, a little more. Or how about if you open up the Bible? Or maybe turn off the television. Or maybe pray with your family. I, I don't know, but he puts things on your heart. That's what made Nehemiah such a godly leader, is he followed God. Right? And God put things in his heart. You know, we saw that earlier in chapter 2, verse 12. It was the same thing. This whole rebuilding of the walls was something that God put into his heart. And so as he called the people together, we're going to see later that what he wants to do is he wants some of them to, to come and live in Jerusalem um, because that has to be populated. But what he does is he takes this whole genealogy thing, he takes this list that's also described in Ezra chapter 2, he finds out where everybody lives, and what he's going to do is he's going to disperse the people in a way that would be balanced and in a way that would protect the people. And in the process, as he's gathering all these people together, as he's following the Lord one step at a time, God would bring a revival. God would bring a revival. We're going to see that when we get into the next chapter, uh, in chapter 8. It's just so cool how God would bring that revival. And so as I was reading it, uh, the first thing I saw about protection is selection. You've got to make sure you choose guys that are faithful and fearful. The second thing is direction. God will show you the divine details on how you're supposed to protect your, your family or your flock. And then right here, what we have is a congregation. And it's a whole bunch of people gathering together, and God is going to bring a revival. And that, to me, is super, super exciting, you know? You know, it's a great get-together that is sparked by God because he put it in Nehemiah's heart. Now, I don't know if Nehemiah necessarily knew this initially. Right now, his motive is to gather the leaders and take a census and organize a proper dispersion of the people to protect the capital and in doing so to protect the Jews. And so, you guys, you read verses 6 through 73. That's your homework for tonight, okay? And uh, I... I've, just will butcher the names. Uh, they're all there, though, inspired by God, and God knows us all by name. But what we have in verses 6 through 73 are all the people who had returned with Zerubbabel. It was right around 50,000 people. 
And through these records, Nehemiah would see who came, what their responsibilities would be. He would pay special attention to what cities and sections of the country the people came from. And eventually, he would do his best to persuade enough of them to make that move and come to live in Jerusalem. I'm sure he'd want Jerusalem to be filled with the cream of the crop, right? And so uh, in verse 6, notice it says, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. And so again, a lot of names. I'll let you guys read through it. I will mention that the sons of certain fathers and the men of certain cities are mentioned as you read through. You'll see the Levites in verse 43. Those are the helpers to the priests. You have the singers. They're also from that clan. You have the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, who were descendants of the Gibeonites. Uh, and they had become temple servants. The sons of Solomon, verses 57 through 60. And even those who couldn't prove their ancestry by genealogy, uh, they claim to be priests. They're all, here's the thing, they're all part of the people that came back. And, and in one sense, like, like I, I use that word congregation, there, there is a safety in the congregation. You know, there is a safety in that. How many times have you heard people say, I don't need to go to church? I don't need to go to church. God knows my heart. I love him. But I don't love his children, I guess, you know? I mean, that's what we are. We're just a church. You need, we need a congregation. We need Nethanim. We need the servants of Solomon. We need the priests, the Levites, the singers. We need all the different combination of people in order to be protected from the enemy. You can't do this alone. What does the Bible say? 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I don't know about you, but I get fascinated when I watch those natural you know, things. And you, know, you see the animals in their kingdom, right? Have you ever seen an, a lion hunt? For its prey, have you guys ever seen those things? And they're bad. I mean, they're there and they're watching the, the flock, whatever it is. But what are they looking for? They're looking for the weak one. They're looking for the one who's away from the rest of them, right? And that's the one who doesn't go to church. That's the one who thinks, well, I don't need to go and be part of this church thing. Well, God instituted the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Yeah, we're definitely all messed up, but we're forgiven, and together, it's amazing what God does. You know, if I was to take all of you guys here and isolate you as singers, most of you would sound terrible. I'm serious, man. I'll be, okay, sing, Paul, or whatever. And Jane would sound good, Paul. I don't know about, but you know, that's the way it would. But, but one thing, have you ever noticed that when we all sing together, it sounds beautiful? That's what happens. That's why we need a congregation. And that's part of the protection that we need. And we got to get plugged in. I always tell people, you can't be church hopping. Well, I go over here and over there and over there and over there. I'm not saying you can't visit churches, but make sure at least you have a home church. A home church where you're plugged in and where you're a part of it because we're all different members of the body. And that's what these guys were. Nehemiah called them all together and God was going to do an awesome work. And so if you jump over to verse 64, 
it talks about these guys who didn't have their genealogy and it says that these sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy but it was not found therefore they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled and the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim and so they didn't know what to do there's this thing called the Urim and the it's actually pronounced Tumim. And, uh, and so, you know, he says, well, we better not do anything until we know for sure, you know, what to do. And, you know, we don't have a whole lot of information on these two things. I do know the Hebrew word translated Urim, it literally means lights. And the Hebrew word translated Tumim, it literally means perfection. And so, have you ever been in a time in your life where you don't know what to do? And you need light? in the darkness, right? Where you want not just the permissive will of God, but you want the perfect will of God. You know, this is a mysterious thing in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly what these two things were, but they were used by the priests to discern the will of God when they didn't know what to do. They would seek him even more so, right? And most believe these to be some types of stones that the high priest used to determine God's will. I know when we went to uh, 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 Singapore, when we were there in the temple of Singapore, it's interesting, um, they had these people, and Gabriel was actually there with me, I think Mary was there too, but they had these people on the floor, and they were praying like this, right? And they had the container of all these sticks in their container, right? And they were going back and forth, and they were going back and forth, and eventually, when a stick would fall out, or maybe go uh, beyond, then they would determine, well, that stick is uh, the will of whatever, the gods. And they would go to this one guy who was in the back, and like, somehow he would kind of, you know, figure out what that meant in their life, you know? Because the enemy is always trying to, you know, duplicate what God does, right? And so for us, we don't need that anymore. That's why we don't know a whole lot about it, because if we had these things, we would probably still look to them, right? Now we have the word of God. Now we have prayer, now we have the Holy Spirit. But the thing is, is that God will show you what to do. You know, these two things, the Urim and the Thummim, they were kept in the high priest's uh, breastplate. I think we have a picture of that. And so you have this breastplate right here, and right there they would have these two things. Most people believe uh, they were stones. We don't know for sure. Uh, the next one um, gives you a picture of uh, someone making their modern-day Urims and Thummims. And so anyways, in verse 66 and 67, we have the totals. And uh, I guess when it was all added up, it came out to 49,942 people. That returned that first time with Zerubbabel. In verses 70 through 72, we have the treasures that were donated by the governor and the heads of the father's houses, the rest of the people. There was enough gold there. I guess it added up to about $15 million dollars. Uh, you got silver, you got priestly garments, you got gold basins. And then the last verse, in verse 73, it says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And what was happening now, you guys, was God was setting them up. The seventh month. 
And later we're going to see that the seventh month meant this feast, this holiday. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And what God is doing now is God is going to bring revival. And I don't know about you, but I know that I could use a little bit of revival. I want that in my own life. You know, in looking at protection, I know it sounds a little corny, but, you know, my last name is Cornea, so what can I do, man? You know, protection, number one, selection. God, this, this attribute of being faithful and being fearful, God, make that me and make that the people around me. And so protection is selection. Protection is direction. Hey, this is how I'm going to close the gates. This is how I'm going to guard the flock or the family, right? And then the third thing is congregation. I'm not going to isolate myself. I'm not going to be a lone ranger because I need the rest of the body of Christ. And then the last word is this. It's the word unction, you guys. It's the word unction. And what unction is, is when you're anointed with the Holy Spirit. When you're anointed with the power of of God. You see, that's what's going to take place in the next chapter in God's perfect timing in the seventh month as people are really seeking God, he's going to give you strength. When I was addicted to drugs, I couldn't stop. When I was drinking, because I started drinking at the age of seven, I couldn't stop. All the things that I could tell you in my life, I had no power over. I couldn't control my tongue, my mind, my eyes, my hands, my feet. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing was good until the power of God came into my life. That happened when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. When God called me and I answered that call and I went forward to receive the Lord, that then set me free. That lifted the burden of sin and forgiveness came into my life. Because Jesus died for my sins on that cross. And when they put him in a grave, he rose again three days later. He conquered death. And now what God calls us to do is to believe in him and receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life. You don't come and just play church. It's not a religion. It's a decision that we make in our heart to say, you know what, I'm done with that life. I want Jesus I need Jesus. And when you make that decision, it's the best decision of your whole life. You know, God will do that work and write your name in the book of life. And you'll know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven. And for us as Christians, as we go through this world, you know, we're leaky vessels. And we constantly need that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit in our life. You guys, that's the unction that we need so desperately as we go forward in our walk with Christ. You know, I don't know how it's going to happen. I think a lot of it has to do with, with you. You know, I don't know. I mean, praying, praying. You know, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. You're too busy. Well, Manny, but I got this going on right here. But maybe you shouldn't have this going on right here. Because we're living in critical days where you should be seeking the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You don't take a day off because then you drift away. I mean, we need that. We need to be in prayer. We need to be fasting. We need to be doing the best our, that we can to live holy lives. You know, I know lately there's been so many issues coming up. That marriage is on the rocks. That person over here is struggling where they, 
you know, might want to take their life. This one over here, they're in bondage to crystal meth. I mean, there are so many heavy situations. And I was having a hard time fasting for a while there. I really was. I'll just confess this to you guys. It was just like, man, Lord, I'm kind of having a hard time fasting until finally I just got bombarded. Boom, boom, boom. Just stuff just kept happening until finally God brought me to that place and he said, well, what else are you going to do? You have to. And so, you know, I was thinking about that guy. I don't know if you guys have heard of Gypsy Smith. He was uh, uh, an evangelist from Great Britain. I mean, this guy, man, amazing dude. He ministered for over 70 years, speaking literally to hundreds of thousands of people in his lifetime. He traveled from Great Britain to the United States 30 times. And when he entered into the Salvation Army ministry, The Lord used him, think about this, to bring 23,000 people forward to profess decisions for Jesus Christ. I tell you what, God used this guy in a tremendous way, right? And I remember the story about this guy, Gypsy Smith. One time someone asked him, they said, you know, how can we have revival? How can we have a great awakening, that type of revival? And Gypsy Smith, what he said, he said, do you have a place where you can pray? Do you have a place where you can pray? Okay, what I want you to do, the guy told him, was I want you to go and kneel down and then take a chalk and right where you are, just write a circle all the way around you. And then what you need to do is pray for God to send revival on everything inside of that circle and stay there until he answers. And then you will have revival. You see... It starts with us. A lot of times we think, well, it's the pastor or it's the overseer or it's the church or it's the usher. They bug me, you know, and we blame it on everything, man. I don't like this color. I would have chose like an earth tone. And I mean, you name it, man. We can think of so many things and God is just saying, no, you know, you catch fire. You catch fire. And then as you catch fire, you watch how others will catch fire. And just think if we all had that heart, man, amazing things that God would do. You know, at the end of the day, here's what I want to share with you guys. Because I've been telling you a lot about protection, and I'm serious, man. Protect your family, protect the flock, protect your heart, right? But at the end of the day, you know what we need? We need God's protection, right? I mean, there's a proverb, Proverb 2131. It says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. You know, just using my wife as an illustration, I hope she doesn't mind, but she says, you can't have a Harley. I'm still praying on that. You know? <laughs> One day, Lord, please, you know? But I mean, you know, what, I mean, or I have, okay, I got a 1992 Toyota truck or whatever. I'll go get a Volvo. I'll go get a Volvo, right? But the, time, the bottom line is when God says it's, it's my time, it's my time. God is the one that protects us at the end of the day. We do the best that we can. You know, Xavier, he doesn't have a motorcycle anymore because God just ministered to him after he broke his neck. He said, no, don't ride a motorcycle. You need to minister. You need to serve. You need to, you know, do what you can to protect yourself, right? But at the end of the day, it's got to be the Lord, right? And so we have that balance. We do our part, and at the same time, we pray, Lord, protect my marriage. Protect my children. Protect Your people, Lord, protect this church because only you 
can. You know, I remember reading a story, and I'll close with this. It, it was a, a guy by the name of Frederick Nolan, and he was fleeing from his enemies during a time of persecution in North Africa. And he was chased over the hill and through the valleys, and he had nowhere to hide. And so finally he fell exhausted into a cave, and he basically yielded to the fact that his enemies would soon find him and kill him. He did everything he could, but he couldn't do any more. So there he is, lying in the cave, awaiting his death. And as he's lying there, looking up at the opening of the cave, he suddenly saw a spider weaving a web. And within minutes, the little bug had woven a beautiful web across the mouth of the cave. And so when his enemies found him and arrived, they were wondering if he was there, but on seeing the unbroken, unmangled art, that web that was there, they reasoned and thought, well, it was impossible for him to enter this cave without dismantling that web. And so they passed on, right? And having escaped that whole ordeal, I love what this man said. He said this. He said, where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. But where God is not... A wall is like a spider's web where God is. Are you following Jesus Christ? He is your only shield from sin and Satan. I pray we would know that and you would allow him to love you. You would allow him to save you. You would allow him to work in your life the way that he wants to.